text we'll be looking at is printed in your bulletin. If you've been with us, you know that uh, a couple of weeks back we started a new series looking at uh, the 12 steps. Uh, that may sound odd to you. Richard Rourke had this to say that the 12 steps are the unique spiritual tool uh, that the United States has actually produced for the world. Uh, that is definitely not an understatement. It is our unique contribution to spirituality in the world. And so for uh, at least the coming weeks, we're going to take each step, uh, one step at a time, which brings us to the third step this morning. What do you do uh, when you find yourself, if you've been with us, uh, powerless over people, places, and circumstances? What happens when we find ourselves powerless over anger, attractions, or shame, actually, in our lives? Step three goes something like this. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Which brings us to the story that is printed in the bulletin this morning. Jesus, uh, by this point in time, had become a very controversial figure. What is astonishing, if you look at his ministry, the people that were most uncomfortable with Jesus were the uptight. Uh, not the people that had... Um, their lives spinning out of control, but instead those who thought their lives, they had their lives together. This story comes from the second year of his public ministry. It was, has been described as a year of prosperity. And they find themselves, the disciples, with Jesus in the Sea of Galilee, which is sort of like a basin. It's a, a lake surrounded by high mountains on each side. Sudden storms, violent storms, uh, are well known for that region. Winds were stronger in the afternoon than in the morning and the evening, and so fishing normally in that region was done at night. But that created its own set of problems because being on the sea at night in a violent storm had uh, increased the difficulty uh, of at least being able to sail and fish. These men that we find in the story, their world had just come apart is the best description to give of it. Look with me as I read from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you be with us this morning as we look into this story from the life of your Son. A story that resonates with many of us. It's echoed down through the ages and it's certainly echoed in our lives and in our hearts when we ask the question, do you care? But be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. C. Everett Coop had three sons and a daughter. One of his sons, David, 
um, was the outdoor type. In fact, he was a mountain climber. While on spring break from Dartmouth College, he and his best friend Charlie had decided they were going to climb the highest peak in New Hampshire. Uh, They were doing a type of climbing that resembles sort of leapfrog is the best description. David, uh, according to Charlie, was out front taking the lead when, in his words, the mountain moved and David fell. That night he was supposed to call home at 9 uh, to let his parents know that he was okay, but the call never came. 9.30, still no call. At 10, the phone rang, but it wasn't David calling. Instead, it was the dean of students at Dartmouth with the sad news that he not only had fallen, but he had passed away as well. Coop and his wife wrote a book called Sometimes Mountain Moves, and this is what he wrote. It was 10 weeks after David died when his Bible came into our hands. Uh, the bookmark in the Bible was in the book of Jude supposedly where he had been last reading. Coop says, we opened the Bible and read the last thing that we think he read, and it was this, now to him who is able to keep you from falling. What happens when mountains move? See, what happens in the lives of these disciples when everything about their world just falls completely apart? Just look at the crisis that you find here. What you see, and what you see really throughout the Bible and certainly throughout the stories of Jesus, is that nobody has a stormless life. If that's you this morning, you know that the storms are out there. You may not be experiencing one currently, but you know their presence. No one is immune, not even his disciples, which is stunning that Jesus would take them really right into the heart of this storm. Look at verse 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. I will tell you that that doesn't really capture actually what Jesus tells them because it's not sort of a wish or even a desire on his part. It really is a command. He's commanding them to actually put out on the sea. It's not a suggestion. Jesus knows, right, uh, that this storm, this squall um, actually is out there. If you know anything from the New Testament, you know that he purposely sends them out into this collision course uh, with this storm. What we know is that there's no such thing as an accident, a cosmic accident. And it's not because he's angry or somehow it's not capricious either. He has a purpose behind this, even though they don't know it and they can't understand it. It's not just the place of the crisis, it's also the power that we see here. Uh, of what occurs. It could be that Jesus, at this point in the ministry, he's just exhausted. But what we do know from the story, he's sleeping in the midst of this storm. It's very likely that by this point in time, the disciples, who were uh, very, very skilled fishermen, they knew their way on the sea. Maybe they looked at Jesus and said this, listen, we got this. Why don't you go get some rest? Why don't you take a nap? We've got this all under control. They had handled storms before. Complete confidence in their ability and certainly their ability on the seas. They knew how to fish. That's for certain. And yet this storm, it exposes them. Uh, It sort of rips the lid off or the roof off of their house of abilities. They were proficient 
after all. And they actually had come to the end of themselves. There's a decisive point in the story, of a point of absolute panic and inability is the best description of it. What's stunning about it is Jesus responds in verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Uh, the point is, really, that the writer is sort of driving home is that the disciples were actually the ones who were asleep on the boat, not Jesus. What they find is that they're powerless over circumstances, situations in their lives. I will tell you, I never tell people what I do for a living. It's, um, and, and why I don't is for very specific reasons, because... Whenever I have in the past, the relationship just becomes weird. I had this guy recently, and I did everything possible not to tell him what I did for a living. Finally, it came out, and the very first thing he wanted to tell me was some weird story about a baptism in his brother. It just changes everything. The assumption is that suddenly I know everything there is to know about God. One of the privileges of having Cornerstone here, and it's a recovery program for young adults and adolescents that meet here at the church, is that when they get to step three, they want to come and talk to me. Now, part of it is that they have a requirement that they have to come and talk to a professional about this. Um, Some of them come, just to be honest, they come to check a box. They've got a list of questions that they want to ask me, and I normally start my time with them by saying, do you really want to do the questions on the sheet or do you really want to ask me what you really want to ask me? Most of them just want to ask the questions on the sheet. Um, They want me to tell them all about God. Listen, what I know is the further along I am on a journey of faith, the less I feel I know about God. The one thing I do know for certain is this, is that I am not God. That is for sure. I've walked with some of you through unbelievable crisis. And what I'm convinced of is that I'm not God. And that's exactly what the disciples are becoming convinced of as well. Is that there may be a God, but it's not them. It's not just the crisis that you see in the story. Unavoidable. Uh, Everyone experiences this. But it's also the desperation is just... They are given on the surface. They're, the disciples are given the gift of desperation, might be the best way. And it's seen in the question, uh, the loaded question, and it's more than a question, actually. There's actually an accusation that lies just behind this question. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Look, many of us have asked, prayed, cried that exact question. Don't you care? Which brings us really to step three. Made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. On the surface, that sounds simple enough. Who wouldn't want to do that? Just look at the disciples here for a minute. Their entire attention, their attention span was centered on one thing and one thing only, and that's this storm. In fact, their whole reality was defined by this storm. And their assumption is that Jesus doesn't care. Uh, They wouldn't ask the question like they phrased it if they actually thought that he did. Here in the story, what you find is their thoughts about Jesus were completely distorted. Even now, they think that they're dealing with, well, a special man. 
Maybe he could help, but he's not in command. Maybe he has special favor with God. What they find is bigger than anything that, that they have ever encountered or would ever encounter again. Step three is really taking the step to say, here's my life. Do whatever you want to do with it. It sounds so simple, and actually it's actually the sort of a fundamental idea behind what it means to be a Christian. That sounds easy enough, and for a lot of us when we come into recovery, that step, part of the step, is simple. Because our lives are such a wreck by the time we get into recovery, we're glad to actually give it to someone else. But it's not just for me, it's for others as well. I had this shirt that I used to wear when we led groups down uh, at the treatment center where my son was, and it it said on the front that I believe in a two-step program is what it said, not 12 steps, two steps. And on the back were printed these steps, came to believe that my life was unmanageable. And then step two was, but became more than willing to believe I could manage your life perfectly. See, the idea that, that suddenly I'm going to entrust other people into the care of God is a much more difficult thing to do. Because, fundamentally, I believe I know what's best for other people. Especially my children. I want to direct their lives. I want them to believe a certain way, behave a certain way. Uh, I want them to journey a certain way. Things would be, have you ever said this, things would be much better if they would just listen to me. You know, behind all of those words, behind these ideas is the idea that I really do think if God would just give me a moment, I can run the world better than He can. We really do believe that we're just as powerful, maybe not, but we're certainly wiser than He is. One writer said this, the difference between me and God is that He doesn't think He's me. I thought that was pretty good. Um, some of you know that we have two children that have been in recovery. Um, and I've been asked the question, if you had to parent all over again, what would you do differently? That's, that's a reasonable question, right, on the surface. My answer varies, but actually it all gets back to really one thing. I would give them over to God sooner. I would let them reap the full benefits of their choices without my interventions. See, as a parent this morning, you want to write the story of your kids. You want to determine where they go and what they become. What we're really saying is, I want them to do what I want. Hidden underneath that is the assumption that I know what's best for them. The reality is, even if God were to let me write their stories, I would have gotten it wrong. Why would I say that? I don't know God's plans for my children. Some would say, look, it's not best that your child go to jail. I would have said that at one time. Um, it's certainly not the story that I would write, but I've got to tell you, my son's life is the story that he needed to write because his story is his, not mine. It was the motivation to actually move him to get treatment. All my efforts, all my words, all my tears did nothing. The reality is I don't know what they need. I don't know what they might need to endure, what they might need to suffer or experience because God is writing that story, not me. I don't know 
and I can't write the story for anyone else. This morning, let me ask you, how much of your anger, your stress, your worry is because someone is not what you think they should be? A better question, how much of your energy, time, is spent, expended, trying to change someone else? We tell God exactly how my life should turn out. Exactly what I need and when I need it. The good news is that God doesn't think He's me. As a pastor, I know this. This is one of the other things I know. Um, I can't control or fix my life, and I can't control or fix yours. But we also see in the story something else. Look again at this question. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Really, look at the accusation that the disciples sort of level at Jesus. Care. Don't you care? Care is a really funny thing. It's a strange thing. Because not only are the disciples suspicious, actually, um, we are as well. See, they can't imagine that God would be caring for them through and in the midst of this storm. They're not certain or convinced that God is doing what's best for them. I want you to see, they don't become fatalists either. Well, this is God's will. Kesara, Sarah. They also don't make promises. Look, Jesus, wake up. I will do better next time, I promise. Uh, I won't cheat on my taxes anymore, I promise. Uh, I'm not going to do any of this. If you'll get me out of this, I'll serve you and I'll love you. This step was a challenge because initially you think, of course I've got this. I turn my will and my life over to the care of God. My sponsor, my spiritual guide, would ask me over and over again this question. Name me a time when God didn't have your back. One time. Name me one time when He wasn't there for you. When He's not doing the very best for you and for those around you. A very old survey was taken. This is a long time ago. Who do you trust the most? 40% of the people at the time of this survey uh, trusted Walter Cronkite. This tells you how old it is. Very old. Uh, 26% of the people trusted the Pope. 12% trusted Billy Graham. God got 3% out of that survey. What did the disciples do? They, they wake him up. They run to Jesus. This is not a story about Jesus will make it all better. It is not a story about Jesus calms all the storms in your life. This is a bigger story going on here. And it's actually found in verse 41. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Jesus is the one who would conquer all the storms. He would subdue and crush every storm that would try to destroy you so that you would know His joy and you would know His care for you. He would go to the cross in order that you would experience that kind of care. It is absolutely impossible for Jesus to care less for you today than He did when He hung on a cross 2,000 years ago. Just the stunning order of Jesus doesn't work because they trust. We've already seen them just lay out an accusation to Him. Instead, so that they would trust. 
In other words, Jesus creates this kind of trust and care. Jesus comes into your life in order that you would believe in Him, not because you do. The one other thing I know about God is this. He operates out of love. Some of you here this morning have this functional, operational view of God that goes something like this, that He is just waiting, waiting for you to do something wrong. And then like my 8th grade English teacher, uh, he's going to wrap you on the head with a ruler um, when, when they do. Uh, he's just waiting for you to blow it. You miss your prayers, whack. Uh, you lie, you're going to get a double whack. Um, if things are going well in your life, you better be on guard because God is just waiting to sort of bring you down. Listen, when the storms come, and they do, it's desperately hard to believe in His care. How could this look like care? How could it look like that God is caring for me? How could this situation be His care? Made a conscious decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You care for us. In the hard places, in the storms, in the crisis that we, many of us, find ourselves in. In the places where we are without power over those around us. Over the situations, the circumstances in our lives over the places we find ourselves. Father, we drive ourselves crazy trying to maintain control and power where we have none. This morning, may we trust in You. May we lean heavily on You and the idea that You care for us. That there's nothing that happens to us that is outside of Your care and Your concern. May we be confident and find peace in that. In the rich name of Jesus we pray. Amen.